I'm holding two mics. Is this good? Okay. Like terrified to speak because of feedback. Okay. Good morning, church. <laughs> All right, we're going down here. Good morning. It's so hard to follow the kids because they talk about the same story we're going to talk about and they do it so well. Like, I don't know what else to say. Um, well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, and happy 4th of July weekend. I hope that you guys are getting extra time to rest, to celebrate with friends and family that this is a fun time for you. Um, I'll be honest and say that this weekend feels a little bit complicated to me. Anybody else got feelings about the 4th of July? Um, so, me too. I, I grew up in Upper Arlington. Um, and in UA, the 4th of July is a really, really big deal. I don't know if any of you have celebrated um, the 4th in UA. But we start the morning with this like massive parade and there's neighborhood floats and all sorts of things. And then we spend, I remember spending the afternoon sort of bopping between people's backyards and barbecues and there's family reunions going on and there's class reunions going on. Ellen was just telling me she celebrated a class reunion and she's gonna be on her float tomorrow. So if anyone wants to go see Ellen in the parade, that's happening tomorrow. Um, there, you know, it feels like everyone comes home for the 4th, and there's all these reunions going on. And then in the evening, there's community festival, and there's fireworks, and um, growing up, it's just a lot of fun. And I, for me, the 4th of July is just sort of like emblematic of summer and celebration and community. And I still feel that way about this weekend. There's still a lot of those elements, and maybe you... Um, feel that some of that is true for you, too. Um, and also, right, the fourth celebrates the founding of our nation and a nation with complex history, with um, complex current political atmosphere, right, a nation that's economy was founded on the enslavement of black people, where women are and can, like, are now and have been marginalized, controlled, where violence in all its forms is just normal here, um, and where these historical and current traumas occur because of the way our law and our culture exists. And the older I get, the more aware of those pains I become, and the more complicated holidays like the fourth become for me. Um, and so if you're feeling any of that today or tomorrow, me too, you're not alone in that. Um, and today, in the Jacob and Esau story, we're going to kind of dig into some of these tensions, right? The tension between culture and family and the law and God's character, God's best. Um, as you may know, we are near the beginning of a very, very, very long sermon series in Matthew. We're going to be parked here for a while, and right now, we're in the beginnings where we're really diving into the genealogy of Jesus. Um, and getting into the stories of Jesus's ancestors and sort of the messy road that leads to um, redemption in Christ. And so today we're going to look at Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, and what their story tells us about how to follow God in the midst of oppressive laws and hurting messed up people. I'm going to pray for us quick. Spirit, come. God, I pray that you administer to us individually the way that only you can do. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being present with us. God, you speak. Amen. One thing I want us to remember about Jacob and Esau before we kind of get into it is that these guys are the grandsons of Abraham, right? And they're part of this family that has this special relationship with God. So earlier in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this, this agreement that includes three promises. It includes the promise of land. It includes the promise of descendants. God says, look at the stars. Look at the sky. Count the stars. If you can even count them, social your offspring be. There's going to be a nation that comes from Abraham and from his line. And then there's a promise of a blessing. I will bless you. Um, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curse, whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's in the covenant that God makes with Abraham. So he makes this promise to Abraham. That was passed on to Isaac. And now we're in this third generation thinking about who, who is this passing to? What's this going to look like? Who's going to inherit the covenant? Um, Genesis 25 and 27 is where we're sort of parking today. It's a long story with a lot of details. I'm going to paraphrase a lot of it and um, perhaps editorialize. But you can read you can read all of it, Genesis 25 and 27. So in the middle of Genesis 25, we learn that Isaac has married Rebecca and that she's pregnant with twins. And this is what the scripture says. The baby the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So this is the prophecy that Rebecca hears from God. So after this prophecy, the very next thing that happens in the story is that we the twins are born and we learn about the twins. Right? And Eve did a great job <laughs> describing these guys. Esau is born first. He's described as red and hairy. Um, he's really into hunting. It says he's a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. The, the scripture talks about that a lot, so you get this idea that, like, that's his thing. Jacob is born second, and scripture says that he came out holding onto Esau's heel, just like right there. Um, and while Esau likes to be out in the fields, Jacob likes to stay home. It says Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. He's maybe what we would call indoorsy. Um, and Isaac, so Isaac, dad, has a taste for, it says, has a taste for wild game, and he loved Esau. Rebecca, who received the prophecy, she loved Jacob. So that's, that's some family context. Here's a little bit more context about the family and the culture. The family is wealthy, right? Abraham had resources. Isaac has resources. These guys stand to inherit a lot of stuff. Another piece of context is they've got this prophecy, right? It was given to Rebecca, but others know about it. Isaac knows what, the, what God said. It's likely that the boys know what the prophecy was. And with a wealthy family like this, there's a lot of other people, servants and other folks around, and uh, this prophecy is there. People know. Third is that this prophecy is in direct contradiction to the law of the land. In the ancient Near East, it's very clear how this is supposed to work, right? The larger share of the inheritance, a bigger portion of the money, the um, administrative control over the state, a state, 
and the ceremonial leadership of the family, all of that is meant to pass to the firstborn son. There are two mechanisms for doing this, and they both come up in the story, so I just want to share about them really quick. The first is the birthright. So the birthright of the firstborn son is that he receives a double portion of the inheritance from the father. And that's written into the law. It's automatic. The law doesn't allow for the father to make a change about that. Like, that's just going to happen. It's the right of the firstborn son. But the son who has the right can give it away, can pass it on to somebody else. I wonder if that will come up later. Second, there's, so that's about the inheritance, the money. Second, there's the blessing. The father, at the end of his life, perhaps, blesses the firstborn son, and that transfers leadership of the family from one generation to another. That makes him the administrator of the family. It gives him the power to spend the money in the estate, to manage the people and the animals and the stuff, and makes him the ceremonial leader like over well, weddings and funerals and stuff. So, so those two things are going to happen. And also, because this family has the covenant with God to pass down, we've upped the ante a little bit, right? Because the birthright and the blessing are also being used as this mechanism to pass down these promises of God from one generation to the next. And so that's all well and good. That's how the law works. That's how their system is set up. But I think we can look at it and say, well, this is, like, this is a little bit unfair. All of this privilege and power and money are being passed to some men and not others based on birth order, which has nothing to do with anything, really, right? Um, and we won't even talk about how daughters are treated in this society. I think you can keep reading in Genesis and see it's, like, pretty bleak. Um, but even among the guys, there's this power imbalance and this injustice happening in the law. And it's highlighted here by the fact that these guys are twins. Right, same birthday, minutes apart, strict in the law. So Isaac, right, dad, he likes to eat meat <laughs> and thinks Esau is cool and would really like to stick with the law on this one, thinks that that would be the best way to pass leadership forward in the family. Rebecca received the prophecy from God. She hangs out with him in the tents all day. They're studying the covenant. They're studying the religious texts. And she's like, this guy, he's the leader of our family. She would prefer to see the prophecy fulfilled. And so at this point, everybody starts scheming to make sure that things turn out their way, the way they see fit. So we're in Genesis 25. Jacob is cooking stew because, you know, he's at the tents. And Esau comes in from hunting. And he says, quick, give me some of that red stew. I'm famished. There's like a red thing going on with Esau. Jacob says, so he says, give me some stew. I'm famished. Jacob says, first sell me the birthright. So like, this isn't the first time they've had this conversation, right? Because that's very weird. Um, sell me the birthright. Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. It's so dramatic. Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and he got up and left. And so, Jacob, so Esau despised his birthright. Right? He didn't value it. He didn't get it. Um, where Jacob understood the significance of the covenant with God, he understood the significance of the financial gain here, and really wanted that to happen. And he knows the prophecy. And so he's forcing that a little bit 
because he's afraid. He's afraid that his he-man brother who loves to hunt and nothing else would become the de facto head of this family, and so he takes things into his own hands and manipulates his brother out of the birthright. Years later, Isaac is old, he's nearly blind. Um, he's running out of time, and he would still really like to see Esau be the head of the family. And so Isaac asks Esau to go hunt for him. Right, because he still, the, the birthright thing is settled, but he still has the blessing to bestow, which is the, the leadership aspect of this. He says, Esau, go hunt for me, make me some good food, I'll bless you. He says that to Esau in private. Rebecca overhears this and um, starts to hatch a plan. Now, this is weird for a lot of reasons, but here I'm going to say that it's weird because typically the blessing ceremony is like a big deal. It's a public event, right? This is ceremonial leadership being passed from one generation to the next. It impacts a lot of people. And typically this would be like everyone would be gathered around and it would be this big event. But because of the way that um, Isaac says it to Esau and because of Rebecca's overhearing of it, we get this picture that Isaac is trying to do this in secret. And that's likely because... We know the prophecy. We know the prophecy. We know what God has said. And Isaac's like, no thanks. I'm, I have the power here. I'm going to get this done the way I want to get it done. Rebecca overhears this. So she tells Jacob, go out and get me some goats. I'll make some good food. Well, you can take it to your dad, and he'll bless you instead. So they hatch this plot where Jacob is going to wear Esau's clothes and cover his body with this goat skin, which is just like so hairy, it's kind of amazing. And um, he, wears, he wears his clothes and he brings him the food and um, there's skepticism. Isaac's not sure. He's like, I think maybe I'm being duped here, but you're hairy like him and you smell like him. And so the plan works. And Jacob receives the blessing from Isaac and this is the blessing that, that he gives. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And in this blessing, we see all three promises of the covenant pass from Isaac to Jacob. We see the land, the family, and the blessing are all Jacob's now. It's done. Esau comes in next with me and he's ready and he says hey dad i'm here and isaac's like who are you it's like i'm esau i'm your firstborn isaac is so upset it says he trembled violently he said who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me i ate it just before you came and i blessed him and indeed he will be blessed esau uh, Esau heard this from his dad, he burst out crying loudly and said to his father, bless me, me too. But Isaac doesn't have anything left for Esau. He gives this some, he says something else over him, but it sounds a little bit more like a curse than a blessing. It's like you're going to live by the sword and your brother's going to rule over you and it's, it's not good. So Esau holds a grudge against Jacob. He says, basically, as soon as my father's dead, I'm going to kill you. Rebecca finds out that Esau is planning this, and she sends Jacob away to go live with her brother. Um, 
says, I'll let you know when you're safe. I'll let you know when Esau forgives you and you can come home. But that doesn't happen. Right? And so we're kind of left here. The prophecy is fulfilled. Right? It happened the way God said it would, I guess. The covenant has passed down to Jacob. He's the leader of the family. He holds these promises from God. And in the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew 1, verse 2, which I guess is our scripture for today, um, it, Jacob's name is there, not Esau's. But the lying and the deception have torn the family apart. Isaac and Rebekah never see Jacob again. He lives with Laban, her brother, for 20 years. He marries his daughters. He has children there. And um, it's not until he's much, much older that he comes home and repairs his relationship with his brother. So I don't know how you feel about the resolution of the story. For me, it's very much a mixed bag. Um, and like so many stories with people in them, um, they're, they're shared blame here. Really, nobody's in the right at all. Isaac, dad, right, tried to bless Esau um, so that his favorite son would have control of the family. He tried to do it in secret, too. Rebecca hatches a plan to trick Isaac into, bl into blessing Jacob instead. Jacob pressured and deceived his way into both the birthright and the blessing. Esau didn't value the family's covenant with God and only wanted the blessing because the law said he would get it, because he wanted that privilege. It was mine. He took it. And um, I don't know. I don't know about you all. I think when I hear that, um, it doesn't sound like too far of a cry from some things I see in my life, from some things I see in the news. And the way that I have summarized it, we'll see if this hits for you, it sounds like there are people like Isaac and Esau who benefit from the unjust law, and they will do what they can to keep that law in place. Right? The people who benefit from the unjust law will do what they can to keep them. And then there's the folks like Rebecca and Jacob, the people who are hurt by the unjust law, they might do hurtful things to change them. And I, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think we're in mourning, I'm in mourning. But when I think of a modern example of this, it was, it was hard not to think about abortion access and the fallout of the Dobbs v. Jackson decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Right, in the aftermath of that policy change, the Department of Homeland Security published a memo warning that there could be a heightened risk of violence in the fallout of this, and that the targets of that violence would be both churches and judges who are supposedly anti-abortion access, and also abortion providers who are supposedly pro-abortion access, and that that risk of violence for both of those groups would maintain for weeks or months as um, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision, but also as state law and ballot initiatives pop up in response, like now that are allowed because of that policy change. It's a continuing threat. The Alethea Group is a tech company that detects misinformation online and tries to eradicate it. So as they're, as they're looking at this, um, they say that they've seen politically charged calls for violence from both the left and the right in response to the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. 
right? The people who benefit from the unjust law will do what they can to keep them, perhaps to the point of violence. And the people who are hurt by the unjust law may do hurtful things, even violent things, to change them. And I'm so thankful <laughs> because the reason we're talking about this Genesis story at all is because it leads to King David and leads to Jesus, right? And Jesus, thank God, offers a different way and we have access to a different way because of him. Jesus, the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant, the redemption of that family and of all people showed us how to kindly, in love, and with integrity, oppose power structures and act in accordance with the character of God. So an example of this is the way that Jesus broke Sabbath laws. Um, the Pharisees caught him working on the Sabbath several times and like to give him lip about it. And one time, Jesus and his disciples are hungry. They're walking around on the Sabbath and they pick some grain to eat. And the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, what are you doing? What's unlawful on the Sabbath? And he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They like sort of walk away confused. And then another time on the Sabbath, Jesus heals a man with an injured hand. After he does that, um, he says to the Pharisees, if any of you has a sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, Jesus opposes unjust laws. He wasn't going to abide by these Sabbath rules that limit care and love towards people. Because love is never against God's law. So when laws are in place that oppress or marginalize, the policy has to change. Policy change is needed. But when Jesus is standing in opposition to the law, he doesn't do hurtful things in order to change them. He doesn't deceive or manipulate like Rebecca or Jacob did. Instead, what we know about Jesus is that Jesus prayed. He maintained constant connection with the Father. And he knew that the will of God didn't need to be forced into existence, that God is big enough to do that. So instead, Jesus speaks truth in love. Jesus takes care of the hurting person that's in front of him. And he lets God take care of the rest. He leaves space for God to move. And in, in Jesus' case, that happened for our benefit. So I think there's an invitation here for us as I think about how Jacob and Esau existed and how Jesus existed. I think there's an invitation for us to think about our relationship to power. Right? Some people would call this privilege, right, where the law and the culture might give you an upper hand in the world. And I know that could be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me sometimes. You know, I'm a white woman from education, from means that grew up in the church. So the rules of the United States, be it the religious rules, the government rules, the cultural rules, they generally work for me. I move through the world without a lot of barriers to the things that I want to do or the life that I want to live. So am I going to be an Isaac? Or, I don't know, vote for an Isaac who will maintain the status quo even though many people are hurt by that status quo because I win in that scenario? I hope not. I hope not. 
But I'm also not sure I want to be Rebecca or Jacob working against my own oppression in a way that's self-serving or causes others to lose. Right? Because the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that it's not a zero-sum game. There are no losers in God's economy. Right? When pain decreases and love increases, we all win. When oppression decreases and freedom increases, we all win. And in an infinite God, there is more than enough of whatever we need. We're ready for Elements Kelly. Thank you so much. So this week, as new stories pop up, and we're processing current events, and we're talking with our friends and family, I want to invite us to a few If we're in that place, I'd like to advise to go back to rest. Wash, rinse, repeat. I know it can be a struggle, but then once we we're praying for kindness and gentleness, I'd like us to pray for wisdom. Wisdom so that we know how to act in ways that increase freedom and care for others as we reject the zero-sum narrative. Because we are all precious and loved by God. And through the example of Jesus, through guidance from Holy Spirit, we can be part of a way forward that looks less like our culture, less like the norm, and more like the kingdom. One way that Jesus took care of people is that he fed them. Do you want to say something, Kelly? Oh, would you like to? Oh, no, to pass it out. Would you like to say something? Sure. Okay. That's okay. Okay, now on the night that was, on the Last Supper, when Jesus was being betrayed, but he, did, he didn't tell Jesus that he was being betrayed, he, gave, he celebrated the Last Supper with his 12 disciples. So what he did was pass around bread to all his 12 disciples. They each took a piece, and they started eating this. He says, this bread is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then... He passed around the wine to everybody. They all took a sip. He says, this wine is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, because I will come back someday and be with you all. And Okay, well, you guys have, okay, everyone have a safe, peaceful, no, safe, be safe. Be at peace and be blessed throughout the whole week.
Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. You know, Jesus got together with his buddies on a holiday weekend, too, and he had this meal. And so, it was the Passover. That's right. Um, and, you know, for me, it's an encouragement that when problems feel really big, one of the, the ways that Jesus took care of people is that he fed them. I think that can feel like a really simple way to start sometimes. Um, so we're going to close now in worship. John's already up here. Um, and we're going to have some folks ready to pray for you um, on the sides here, if people would, would do that. Um, I would encourage you to get prayer this morning for whatever you're feeling. Um, if news is hitting you in a hard way and um, things just feel difficult, get prayer. If you're working through, like I am, cutting ties with these power structures that benefit us, um, get prayer. Let's get prayer. For whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, um, we're here for you. Let's go to God together for what we need this morning. I am so thankful for you, Central Vineyard. I'm thankful for the way that you care for people. You encourage me in this. Um, and I love you. I hope you enjoy this weekend, that you get the extra rest that you need, and that you do feel a sense of celebration. God bless you.